We read the Holy Scriptures together this morning in the Epistle of Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 6. The concluding section of his epistle in which the Apostle exhorts us to be strong in the Lord in the spiritual battles that we are fighting. Ephesians 6, let's begin reading at verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand, to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak, but that ye also may know my affairs and how I do. Take a kiss of beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord shall make known to you all things, whom I have sent unto you, for the same purpose, that ye might know our affairs, and that he might comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Let's consider together, too, the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism. In Lord's Day 52, question and answer 127. Which is the sixth petition? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is, since we are so weak in ourselves that we cannot stand a moment... And besides this, since our mortal enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh, cease not to assault us, do thou therefore preserve and strengthen us by the power of thy Holy Spirit, that we may not be overcome in this spiritual warfare, but constantly and strenuously may resist our foes, till at last we obtain a complete victory. 
We'll save the rest of that Lord's Day for next time, Lord willing. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are currently in the midst of a great war. And when I say that, I'm not referring to any physical war, any earthly war, although there are always wars going on in the world throughout history. But I'm referring, of course, to the fact that we are in the midst of a great spiritual war, And that is nothing less than the battle of all ages, the war between light and darkness. The Apostle Paul teaches that in his epistle to the Ephesians. In chapter 6, verse 12, he says, We wrestle, that is, we fight, we engage in warfare, not against flesh and blood. This is not a physical war but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And therefore, he calls us to put on the whole armor of God and to pray and to watch and to be vigilant. We sometimes forget, I think, that we are in a war, And that is exactly one of the tactics of the enemy. He wants us to forget that we are in a war. He wants us to fall asleep in the midst of the war. And he even wants us to think that there is no war. If he can accomplish any of that in us, then he succeeds. But let us not be deceived. We are in a war. And this war will continue until Jesus comes again. Let us not fall asleep in this war. But as the apostle exhorts us, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Our Lord Jesus Christ teaches us to pray for strength in the midst of the war. And that essentially is the meaning of the sixth and final petition of the model prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The sixth petition follows the fifth petition and is closely related to it. You see, in the midst of this spiritual war, we fall, we fail, we sin, we give in to the temptations and assaults of our enemy, we fall down on our faces every single day. And then we feel guilty. We feel ashamed of our sin. Our conscience accuses us that we are sinning against God, that we are breaking his commandments. And in that experience of conscience, we are humbled. We are broken. We are contrite in spirit. We confess our sins sincerely before God. And we fly unto him in prayer. We ask him to forgive us our debts. 
And when we do that, when we humble ourselves and confess our sins and pray for forgiveness by faith in Christ crucified and not trusting in any of our own works, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to restore unto us the joy of salvation. That's the fifth petition, which we saw last time. The sixth petition follows after the fifth petition as its fruit. They're closely related. When we make the fifth petition and we experience in our souls that God truly forgives my sins, and we experience I'm truly righteous in Christ, then we have an eager longing to resist the next temptation when it comes, to overcome that temptation. We have an eager longing to be delivered from evil, the evils in our lives. We want to beat back our enemies, and we want to experience the victory that is ours in Christ. And that's what leads us to pray the sixth petition. Lead us not into temptation now, but deliver us from evil. We plea for strength to overcome temptation. So the sixth petition is the fruit of what we receive from God through the fifth petition, just as sanctification is the fruit of justification and always follows it. But as we have seen, a petition is a request arising out of a desire for something that we desperately need but we can't obtain for ourselves and we know it. And although we desperately long to experience victory over sin, we know that we can't do it. And that's why we plead with God in the sixth petition for strength to resist, to overcome, and to enjoy the victory. So let's consider the sixth petition under the theme praying for deliverance from evil. First of all, let's notice the relentless assault of temptations In the second place, the petition for strength to resist. Finally, the hope of complete victory. We need to make the sixth petition because of the relentless assaults of temptation. And these relentless assaults, according to the Heidelberg Catechism, on the basis of the Holy Scriptures, come from three sources. We have a threefold mortal enemy. And the Catechism teaches us that that mortal enemy, that enemy that wants to kill us, is first of all the devil, secondly, the world, and thirdly, our own sinful flesh. The devil ceases not to assault us, the devil is our ancient foe. The devil is that once mighty and lofty cherub, one of the greatest of the angels of God in heaven, who used to serve God and praise God and do what God commanded him to do. But in his pride, he was lifted up and he wanted to be God and he rebelled against God. And God cast him down to the earth and he took with him one-third, we are told, of the angels of heaven. He is the great red dragon that pursues the church throughout history. He is that old serpent who beguiled our first mother, Eve, 
as she stood before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and who used our first mother to tempt and beguile our first father, Adam, to disobey God in the garden. He is Satan, the adversary of God and of his church, who is irreconcilably opposed to God and his Christ and his people and his cause. He is the father of lies, the prince of the power of the air, who is a mighty spiritual force, who has at his disposal a mighty army of demons and ranks of principalities and powers and thrones and dominions, demons who, like their leader, cease not to assault us, who desire nothing less than to kill us physically and spiritually and to drag us down with them into hell. They're always about, always lurking like a lion, looking for its prey, watching for an opportune moment to launch an assault, to pinpoint their darts in just the right time and just the right place to have just the right effect. They're always whispering things into our ears. The devil. In the second place, the source of these relentless spiritual assaults is the world. The world is the sum of all ungodly and unregenerate men at any one given moment in time. It is the sum of all unbelievers, young and old, little children who are unbelievers, middle-aged people who are unbelievers, old men who are unbelievers. It is the sum of all of them in the world at any given time. Those men, women, and children who do not yet know God in Christ who are still lost in the darkness of sin and unbelief. Now, when the Bible speaks of the world, we know that God sent his Son not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved. And so we know that Christ sends forth missionaries into the world to gather and call out of it all of his elect people. And he will do that. He will call them out of the world and cause them to know God in Christ unto eternal life. But when the Catechism speaks here of the world as our mortal enemy, it means the sum total of all unregenerate and unbelieving men at any given point. They are our mortal enemy, the children of Adam and Eve who are still set against God and his Christ and his church. The world includes that ungodly man at work who tempts you, who mocks you, who accuses you. It includes that ungodly child at school who persecutes you, who makes fun of you. It includes all of the ungodly on the television and in the internet who try to influence you to follow in their footsteps. The world is a mortal enemy. And in the third place, the Catechism mentions our own flesh. We have an enemy inside us, our old man of sin, which each one of us carries in us until we die. That's the enemy within. And that shows us just how urgent this petition is and just how fierce this battle is. 
that inside us is this flesh, this old, corrupt, sinful, depraved nature, which is an ally to the world and an ally to the devil, so that our other mortal enemies have within us an ally. And they can speak to us and tempt us through our flesh. They have within us a listening ear. So that not only is our old flesh an ally of our other enemies, but it is also itself an enemy. And some of the assaults come from without, from the world and the devil, but some assaults arise from within when we tempt ourselves to sin. Those are our enemies and the sources of these relentless assaults. The Catechism and the Scriptures make plain that there is great urgency in this battle. The enemy would have us to forget that we are in a war, to fall asleep, or even to deny that there is a war. But there is urgency. The Catechism points out, first of all, that since we are so weak in ourselves that we cannot stand a moment you think of yourself that way? Do I think of myself that way? That we are so weak in ourselves that we cannot stand for even a single moment. That's because of our sinful flesh in us. The Canons of Dort also teach that in the fifth head, Article 3. The Reformed Fathers taught that by reason of these remains of indwelling sin in us and the temptations of sin and of the world, those who are converted could not persevere in a state of grace if left to their own strength. That's the same as what the Catechism says here. We cannot even stand for a moment. We can't persevere. We can't continue in the faith. We can't even stand for one single moment if left to our own strength. We are incredibly weak. Sometimes we think that we are strong. Don't we? Don't we sometimes think we have it, we have the strength, we're able to do this. We can overcome these temptations. We can overcome these assaults of ourselves. But if we ever think that for a single moment, we are foolish, we are deceived, and we are proud. As soon as we think that we are strong, that's when we are weakest. And that's when we are about to fall. But when we know that we are weak, when we know and confess from the heart with sincerity, I am so weak, so weak, that I can't even stand for a single moment. That's when we're strong. Because that's when we look to God as our strength, as our help, and as our refuge We are strong when we look away from ourselves by faith to God. And then furthermore, the Catechism indicates how urgent these assaults are when it tells us that our enemy ceases not to assault us. These spiritual assaults are relentless. 
That's not the case in physical wars. Think of the war in Ukraine. About a year ago, Russia invades Ukraine, declares war unjustly against them, and Ukraine fights back, and a war ensues. And the Russians and the Ukrainians are fighting back and forth, launching bombs and missiles, killing each other in the streets, raging against each other, trying to win the victory. But there are times in the war when both sides agree to a ceasefire for a time. And then they put down their weapons and they stop launching their bombs and both sides have a rest to regroup, to refresh, to reset themselves for further fighting. There's a ceasefire for a time. There are no ceasefires in this spiritual war. And there are no ceasefires because our enemy, the prince of darkness, refuses to have one. He is relentless. He ceases not to assault us. And the world ceases not to assault us. The devil is full of rage because he has tried to stop the Messiah from coming, but he failed. The child Jesus was born. He tried to have him killed through Herod, but failed. He grew up. He tried to tempt him in the wilderness, but failed. He had him crucified, but then he failed when he realized that Jesus gave himself on that cross. And then he arose from the dead. And now the devil, knowing that Christ has ascended into glory, is full of rage. He knows that his time is short. And he wages war against the church and attacks relentlessly for hundreds and thousands of years. He has been refining his approach, honing his methods, developing his strategies, getting to know human beings and how we work and how we tick, and getting to know you personally. Because he wants to know how you tick, what makes you go. And he develops specific strategies and wiles and tactics in his battle against you. The Apostle Paul speaks in the passage in verse 11 that we must put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. The word wiles means stratagems, methods. He's always developing strategies and methods of how to attack us, to bring us down. The battle is fierce. The assaults are relentless. Now let's be more specific. The relentless spiritual assault of the battle that we are in comes in the form of temptation. That's why our Lord teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation. Temptation is the specific tactic, although it comes in many different forms, that our enemy uses. When temptations fail, he resorts to persecution. He resorts to just trying to wipe us out. But always he first tries to tempt. That's his main method of operation. Temptation is the attempt of the enemy to allure us into sinning and to lead us away from God into doubt and unbelief. And therefore, we know that temptations do not originate with God. Sometimes the Bible says that God 
tempts. But then we have to understand that the biblical word for tempt can also mean test. God tests his people, but he never tempts us as the devil does. Because in that sense, the word temptation always means that someone is trying to persuade us, to beguile us, to deceive us, so that we sin. And God does not do that. James chapter 1 makes clear that God does not tempt us with evil. But we are tempted by the devil, we are tempted by the world, and we are tempted by our own flesh. The devil begins his craft of temptation when we are little children. When you were little children, the devil began tempting you when I was a little child. And these little children here, the devil is tempting them already. The devil uses strategies that involve lies. The devil always attempts to deceive us to believe lies. And so he sees us when we are little children, when we are young, when we are vulnerable spiritually, when we are still learning and growing in the faith. And he looks for opportune moments when we are especially weak, when we are hurting, when we are in pain, when we are vulnerable. And then he strikes. And then he tries to insert into our tender little souls lies about who God is. Lies about who we are. Lies about what life is about. Lies about whether anyone truly loves us. He attempts to beguile us, to lead us down the road that he knows will lead into all kinds of wickedness and sin and unbelief. That's what he does when we're children. He does that through the world. He does that through bullies. He does that through abusive fathers or mothers or other relatives. He uses flesh and blood, people, to plant those lies in us when we are young. And then as we grow, he tries to make those lies sink in deeper. He tries to confirm in our minds that those things are true. Even though we learn from the pulpit and in the catechism that God loves us, We believe that no one loves us. Even though we learn that Christ was forsaken for us, we believe that we have been forsaken. We believe that we are failures, even though God tells us that we are worthy and precious to him in Christ. We believe those lies. And he tries to confirm them through our experiences. And then... We become youths, 13, 14, 15 years old, and into high school. And once he's planted a certain number of lies, once he has done his groundwork with us, once he has accomplished certain things in our lives, he attempts to advance further, and he brings temptations upon us. He throws at us a barrage of darts, fiery darts, temptations. Because if we are hurting from those lies or those insecurities of of childhood's early days. And then we become high school students, and now we have before us the whole of the possibilities 
of the thrills and the pleasures of this life. And so he throws at us the temptation of those thrills, those thrills that our parents taught us are forbidden things that we ought not to do, that we know from Scripture are wrong to do. What about drinking alcohol excessively? What about drinking with your friends at the party to the point of drunkenness? What does that feel like? You've never experienced it before. Give it a try. Maybe you'll find that it's actually quite fun and very enjoyable. And so he gets you to do it the first time. And you drink yourself into a drunken stupor. But then he's not satisfied with that. He tempts you to do it again. Well, that was a lot of fun, wasn't it? Do it again. There's another party this weekend. Have a good time. Drink. Enjoy yourself. He presents to us all kinds of substances, all kinds of foods and drinks and drugs for us to enjoy. And he brings the temptation through friends, through peers, through relatives, to take hold of those substances and to enjoy them, to ingest them into our bodies and to see what it feels like to experience the thrill and the rush and the buzz that come. And we find that that experience gives us, for a moment at least, a little bit of reprieve from some of our sorrows, some of our struggles, and we like it. And so the devil hooks us. He pulls us farther in and farther in so that the use of those substances, which may be legitimate to use in moderation, he pulls us to use them not in moderation, but in excess, so that now we become dependent on them And we're using them, not once in a while, but every single day, in excessive amounts. And we find that we need those things just in order to live through the day. Don't you see how he hooked us when we were young and pulled us and pulled us and pulled us deeper and deeper in? When we are young and in the home, our parents shelter us from sexually explicit imagery. But we become teenagers, and the devil casts his darts, his fiery darts at us, tempting us to open up the laptop, to open up the phone, to go and get the magazine with our friends and have a look. And he plunges us for the first time into the dark world of pornography. But that's never enough. He entices us to go and look again, and then to look again. And again, and he puts his hooks into our soul and drives us deeper and pulls us farther, farther than we intended, deeper than we thought we would go, until suddenly, every day, we think we need these things just to get through the day. Thrills become addictions, bondage, slavery. And that's what the devil wants for you and for me. Because addictions are idolatry, and idolatry distracts us from trusting in the Lord our God with all our heart, relying upon him only to get through the day, 
looking to him only for joy and peace and rest and relaxation. All these things, which many of them are legitimate to enjoy in moderation, become idols upon which we depend instead of God. But there are many other ways that the devil tempts us, of course. Some children and some youth get through their childhood and youth without too much suffering, without too much trauma, without abuse. They don't feel this urge to medicate and cope with life through addiction, addictive drugs and things. But the devil comes and tempts us to judge others. In pride, to boast ourselves over others who do struggle with things. To gossip about them. Or the devil fills us with fears. He wants us to be terrified. He wants us to go through life terrified. Terrified of the next thing that could happen to us. The next sickness. The next surgery. Or when we're going to die. How we're going to die. Or even worst of all, that we're not going to go to heaven when we die. But we're going to perish in hell. The devil whispers into our ears things he wants us to believe, all kinds of things about the world we live in, about God and about ourselves, beliefs which will lead us astray from God and astray from the pure doctrine of the word of God into the swamp of worldly philosophy. The devil tempts us when we are adults to look at our neighbor and how successful he is, whether our neighbor in the church or outside of the church, and to cast an envious eye upon him, a jealous eye, and to covet his wife, to covet his house, to covet his possessions, his career, his income, until that envy consumes us. And we find ourselves constantly gossiping about our brother or our neighbor behind his back in our envy. He wants to steal out of our hearts the rare jewel of Christian contentment. The devil wants to desensitize our minds with regard to swearing, cursing, blasphemy, fornication, adultery, violence, homosexuality, and all kinds of evils on the movie screen. He tempts us to watch something we know we ought not to watch and then to go a little further and watch something a little worse and then something a little worse yet until that becomes our routine and our habits so that instead of exercising restraint and caution with what we put before our eyes and what we allow to enter into our ears, we throw ourselves with reckless abandon into all kinds of filth on the television screen. He's trying to destroy our souls and to lead us away from God. And then, when we suffer afflictions and trials, he tempts us to be angry with God. Because we don't deserve this, do we? We don't deserve this struggle and this affliction. So he tempts us to shake our fist at God and so many other temptations. 
And so our Lord Jesus teaches us in the midst of this fierce, relentless spiritual battle to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The Apostle Paul teaches us in Ephesians 6 that we are to put on the whole armor of God. We are to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We are to have our loins girt about with truth. That means that we are to put around our waists a belt of truth. And in those days, the clothing they wore, they needed a belt to hold up their robes so that they could run and walk better. The devil tries to put these lies into us to slow us down and to cripple us so we can't run in the Christian life. Paul says, tie that belt of truth around your waist. Get rid of the lies and replace them with truth. He goes on in verse 14, having the breastplate of righteousness, a breastplate covering and guarding your vital organs, especially your heart. A breastplate not of your own righteousness, but of the righteousness of God in Christ. Because that righteousness of Christ, which he has earned for you, is the only thing that can protect you when the devil casts his fiery darts of accusations at you of how much of a sinner you are and how guilty you are and how much you deserve to go to hell. The breastplate of righteousness will rebuff those attacks. Verse 15, have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Are your feet prepared for the battle? The way you prepare your feet to run and to fight is with the gospel of peace. Knowing the gospel, believing it, treasuring it. The gospel of peace, that you have peace with God through Christ. Verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith. A shield of faith to quench the fiery darts of the wicked. When he casts his darts at you, flaming with fire, you have to have faith. Believing in God through Christ, you quench those darts which would have you to doubt and fear. Verse 17, taking the helmet of salvation. Yes, in your head is your mind, your Christian regenerated mind. And it must be protected in the spiritual battle with the helmet of salvation. So that in your mind you remember your salvation. You remember what God in Christ did to save you from your sins and to save you from the wrath to come. That will protect your mind from the devil. And finally, you take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God in your hand. And with that sword of the Spirit, you thrust it into the belly of the dragon when he tempts you. As Jesus did himself in the wilderness, when he said, it is written, it is written, it is written. Do you do that? When you're tempted to sin, do you say to your enemy whom you cannot see, it is written, I ought to serve the Lord my God and him only. That's fighting the good fight. It would be a wonderful form of morning personal devotions, which I suggest to you, to take this passage, I've done that before, and go through each of the elements of the armor of God. Take just one per day, or even maybe one per week, 
Focus your mind and your heart on it. Understand what it means. Understand how it applies to you, to your unique temptations. And then use it as a a matter for prayer. The Apostle Paul concludes that section, verse 18, by urging us to pray. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Praying always. That's the way to fight this battle. The Heidelberg Catechism explains the meaning of this sixth petition. First of all, do thou therefore preserve us by the power of thy Holy Spirit that we may not be overcome in this spiritual warfare, but constantly and strenuously may resist our foes. It's a prayer that God will preserve us so that we resist those temptations. We want to resist our foes. Why are we praying that God will preserve us? As Calvinists, don't we believe the truth of the preservation of the saints? Isn't that simply a fact that God preserves us and he will preserve us? It is indeed. It is not possible for one of God's elect people to fall away from grace and to perish eternally in hell. It is not possible. Even in the last days when the Antichrist comes, our Lord Jesus comforts us that although his deception will be very great, so great that if it were possible, he would deceive the very elect. But it's not possible. Even the strongest, mightiest deceptions and temptations that the world can throw at us are not capable of causing the elect to fall away and perish in hell. In John 10, verses 28 through 30, our Lord said that the sheep will never perish because he holds them in his hands and the Father holds us in his hands. He preserves us. But that's in no contradiction to what the Catechism teaches us to pray in Lord's Day 52. Preserve us. Because God preserves us through means. The Canons of Dort teaches that too in Head 5, Article 4. The Head on the Preservation of the Saints. Head 5, Article 4. The weakness of the flesh cannot prevail against the power of God who confirms and preserves true believers in a state of grace. But then in Article 14, God preserves us by the hearing and reading of his word, by meditation thereon, and by the exhortations, threatenings, and promises thereof, as well as by the use of the sacraments. God preserves us through those means. And he also uses the means of prayer, according to our catechism. Preserve us, we are taught to pray. Preserve us so that we will resist. Do you pray that? Do not think of it this way. Do not think 
if I just pray harder, if I just pray more often, if I just pray more frequently, if I, 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 I just do those things and do them better, then maybe I will overcome temptation. If you think like that, you won't overcome temptation. What are you focusing on? Focusing on yourself. But we've already confessed, I'm so weak that I cannot stand for a moment. Why would we focus on ourselves? Why would we even focus on our prayers, our act of praying, as if that's going to deliver us? No, it won't. You will fall flat on your face again. When the Catechism teaches us to pray, when the Scriptures teach us to pray, when our Lord teaches us to pray, He's teaching us to look away from ourselves to God. Look to God, because God alone can deliver you and preserve you in temptation. God alone can do that. God alone can give me the strength to overcome, to resist. God alone can give me the wisdom, the will, the desire, but the wisdom to know how to navigate these snares and temptations of the devil and how to overcome in the spiritual warfare by using the means that God gives us. I cannot win this fight. I cannot just pray harder and escape. When we think like that, then we're praying out of faith in our praying. We're not praying out of faith in God. If you pray out of faith in your praying, if you pray trusting in your own praying, you fall flat on your face. But when you pray by faith in God, then you experience the victory. Then you cast yourself into the arms of God and you plead, you plead, God, do it, do it. Work in my life. Show me the way. Show me thy paths. Lead me in the way of righteousness. Give me a way of escape. I don't want to live like this. I don't want to have these sins in my life. I hate them. I want freedom. I want victory, Lord. Set me free. When you pray that, when you beseech him, then amazing things happen. Because then you're not looking at yourself. But you're looking to God. Lead us not into temptation, our Lord teaches. Will God actually lead us into temptation? The Canons of Dort had five, once again, Article 4. The Fathers taught that in some particular instances, believers deviate from the guidance of divine grace. They become seduced by the lusts of the flesh. And note this, by the righteous permission of God, actually fall into great and heinous sins of which David and Peter 
are two of the outstanding examples in Scripture. Think of it like this. Your little child, your two-year-old or your three-year-old, sees the raging bonfire and is toddling closer and closer to it, wondering what it is, wanting to touch it, wanting wanting to feel it. And he or she keeps doing that, keeps doing that. And you're terrified for your child. They're going to trip and fall into the fire and get hurt and burn and die. But you realize, I have to teach him how terrible it is. So very carefully, you bring your child to that fire. You hold his hand and you reach it a little closer to the fire, just close enough so that the child feels the heat and pulls his hand back. God will do that with us. If we're behaving like that, if we're reaching closer and closer to the fire, all that the Scripture says is fire, all that Scripture says burns in fire for all eternity, the wickedness and the ungodliness, if we keep reaching for it, keep keep reaching for it, we want to get a little close, we want to be as close to it as possible, And God might put our hands right into that fire so we feel the burn. That's leading into temptation. Notice, that's not the same as tempting us. God doesn't tempt us. But God might say, okay, is that what you want, my son, my daughter? Then go for a bit. And he might drop us into the battle for a moment, still preserving us in a state of grace, nevertheless dropping us into the heat of the battle so that we fall. Then we taste through hard, bitter experience how terrible sin is. And that's why we pray, lead me not into temptation. I don't want to have to learn the hard way. That's what it means. Finally, the Catechism explains the second part of it, deliver us from evil. Strengthen us, the Catechism says, that we may constantly and strenuously resist our foes. Pray for deliverance by faith in God's power from the specific sins in your life that beset you and me. The Catechism says we are to make this prayer until at last I obtain a complete victory. And that's the hope that the scriptures hold out to us. Complete victory. The motivation for fighting, the motivation for wanting to overcome even the greatest temptations and sins in our lives, the motivation is that we already have the victory in principle. The motivation is that Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead to give us the victory And through the power of the cross and resurrection of Christ, 
He has wrenched out of the hands of Satan the keys of sin and death and hell. And he has obtained the power to break us free from sin. And through regeneration, he gives us in principle that victory. We have it. So that we are able to confess with Paul in Romans 8, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We are not just conquerors, we are more than conquerors. Because that victory is so certain and so sure, it's finished in principle, it's all there. And not only that, but what motivates us to keep fighting the good fight is that we experience that. so wondrously and blessedly in our lives. We experience it very concretely. But there was a time when I wrestled so badly with that particular temptation, and whereas it's not gone away completely, the Lord has given me to taste victory in that area of my life. And when we taste that, that's God applying the riches of Christ in our lives That motivates us to keep going, to keep fighting, to keep praying until we attain the complete victory. The complete victory will be when the Lord graciously snatches us out of this battlefield and takes us into heavenly glory. Do you long for that? When all the weary night is past and I awake with thee to view the glories that abide, then, then, I will be satisfied. And to have Christ come again on the clouds of heaven to raise my body from the dead and reunite it with my soul in a perfect union of body and soul like unto his glorious body to dwell under the new heavens, on the new earth, with all God's saints for all eternity, without ever again a single temptation. That's the complete victory. That's when our hope will be perfectly realized. We will dwell together with all God's people, with all our enemies banished to the lake of fire for all eternity to dwell in peace and rest with God. Look forward to that as you fight the good fight and as you put on the armor of God and as you pray to resist temptation. Amen. Our gracious and merciful God, we give thanks to thee for instruction on Christian prayer. As we have now learned the six petitions of our Lord Jesus Pray that thou would use them for our spiritual good, that we may grow in prayer, grow closer to thee, and depend wholly and entirely upon thee for all that we need for the body and all that we need for the soul, until at last we receive that for which we hope, the complete victory. Come, Lord Jesus.